Hello, everybody, and welcome to our amazing virtual system Palma webinars. Another great day with fantastic webinars just before us. So we had an amazing um, webinar with the Stratus uh, Winery winemakers from Canada, uh, where we enjoyed an amazing presentation. But we have a star guest, uh, Jasper Maurice now. But before I, I introduce him to you and welcome him, I just want to tell you what is going to happen afterwards. So at 8 p.m., Chad Melville, who is the head wine grower at the family estate of Melville, which is located in Santorita Hills, will talk about their exciting Chardonnays and Syrahs and Pinot Noirs. But for now, let's give a big welcome to the one and only Jasper Maurice Master of Wine. We are very excited and very lucky to have him as he's sharing his incredible knowledge on Burgundy with us uh, week by week. And tonight, we, he will guide us through the Grand Cruise of Maurice Saint-Denis. So as usual, do chat away on the side, share with us what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from. If you do have the tasting kits, as usual, feel free to say what you feel about them, which one you like, which one you, you prefer, or just any tasting notes you have in mind and you'd like to share with us, we would be very pleased to read them. And again, if you have any tricky questions, very uh, technical questions, I know Jasper will be able to answer all of them. So put them in a Q&A box, and so he's going to be able to read them and answer them uh, for you. So uh, all I have to say now is that welcome, Jasper. Welcome back. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, sorry, I just disappeared for a second because I realized I was in my squeaky chair, and so <laughs> I've just gotten my non-squeaky version. Um, welcome, everybody. Don't forget to use the chat as much as you can to say what you're drinking, uh, what you think of the wines, if you've got the set of wines, uh, any comments you might want to make about the subject in hand, or anything else you, you feel like doing. I see I've just been joined by my sommelier cat. I won't put him on screen, but uh, I hope he doesn't cause chaos. So tonight is uh, Maurice Saint-Denis. And uh, I think Sophie's just putting up on the chat what the wines are going to be, the order that will go through them. And we're just going to look at the Grand Cru's. And um, I'm going to try to uh, manage myself uh, a few things technically. Um, but I hope uh, that you can see the map of Maurice Saint-Denis. Yes, uh, it's all good. Great, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what do we know about Maurice Saint-Denis, apart from the fact that it's been Chambon-Musny and chevry Chambertin? And so many people compare it to Chambol and to Gervais when they're talking about it, either by saying that it has all the finesse of Chambol Musny and all the structure of Gervais. If you happen to be a grower in Maurice Saint Denis, that's probably what you say. Or if you're not a grower in Maurice Saint Denis, you sometimes say, well, it's not quite as elegant as Chambol and it's not quite as well structured as Gervais. It's the smallest of all the uh, main uh, vi um, <coughs> viticultural villages of the Cote d'Or. It's only 150 hectares in total, uh, but it is the only one in the whole Cotonoui where you can walk from one side to the other and be on Grand Cru land, because you'll see that light purplish color are the Grand Cru's, and above that and below that in particular in orange, salmon pink orange, are the Premier Cru's, and then in green are the village vineyards, mostly downslope, but a few uh, have been hacked out of the, the forest uh, near the top of the hill. So we have four, pedants will insist on five Grand Cru's in Maurice Saint-Denis, uh, going from right to left, Claude La Roche, Claude Saint-Denis, Claude L'Ombre, and Claude Those are the, That's in fact the order that we're going to taste the wines. And then you'll see there's a little bit of Le Bon Mar, uh, which just has got stuck over from uh, Chambon Musny. But 
I think it just muddles. Uh, it would be more helpful if they had drawn the uh, borders differently. Uh, it just muddles the picture to consider it as belonging to two communes. Having said which, personally, I think the style of Bonmar is a little bit more Maurice Saint-Denis than it is uh, Chambon Musigny. But we're not going to have one tonight. We're going to have two each from Claude Laroche and Claude Saint-Denis, given that those two Grand Crus have multiple ownership. And then we're going to have one each from the two uh, monopolies. Uh, I hesitated there for a second because, of course, uh, the Claude Lombre isn't 100% a monopoly for reasons that we'll mention when we come to Claude Lombre. Claude Tar absolutely is. So <clears throat> we will know more about Maurice Saint-Denis very shortly because the excellent local geologist uh, Françoise Venier has been digging holes uh, throughout the commune and uh, she, I think, has shared them with the uh, vignerons of Maurice Saint-Denis and they are planning a day in which they're going to uh, get press around and other interested people and uh, talk us through them, show the results of all the holes that have been dug, uh, but that hasn't happened yet, later this year, I believe. So let's take a look at the four Grand Crus. Um, these days, none of them is quite considered in the very, very top category, but I would place them probably higher than most other people would. By the very top category, then we're talking about La Romane Conti, La Romane, um, Richebourg, Romane Saint-Vivant, Chambotin, Chambotin, Claire de Bez, Musigny. Um, and then the division below that would be the best of the satellite Grand Cruise from Chevrolet-Chambotin plus Bonmar, Claire de Roche, Claire Saint-Denis, and the two, I'm going to call them, refer to them as monopolies, despite what I said a minute ago, uh, Lombre and Claire de Tarre. Historically, Claire de Tarre would probably be considered the grandest of the four. And by the end of the evening, we can play around and decide uh, where we want to situate the four vineyards. Right, so <clears throat> uh, Maurice Anthony also uh, has the characteristic that it is one of the many villages which decided to uh, add the names of one of its vineyards to itself. So it was just Moray. And uh, then it chose in 1927, which is considerably later than the others, that's uh, 80 years after Chevrolet Champetain, uh, it chose Close Saint Denis, it chose to add Saint Denis. Uh, whether or not that was the best choice, who knows? They probably didn't want to go with either of the monopolies, and they preferred Saint Denis to La Roche. Uh, Moray de La Roche sounds like a second rate novelist to me, still. So, <clears throat> Uh, we will get to the, uh, the nitty-gritty uh, pretty soon. We have mostly got 2009s with one 2010 to taste tonight, if you have the, uh, if you've got the full um, uh, a pack of wines to taste. And we're going to begin with two Claude La Roche, including the one uh, 2010. So, uh, to stop the, uh, no, I'll stay on the sharing because <clears throat> What's happened with both Claude La Roche and Claude Saint-Denis is that they have, across the years, uh, added some extra vineyards to where they began, because uh, they began life uh, with just the central piece in each case. So Claude La Roche originally are those two sectors there, where I put the hearts, uh, and um, 
prior to the beginning of Appalachian in the 1930s, that was all that Claude Laroche was. But then after that, they decided to add extra bits. And uh, so in 1936, they also added uh, Montluison, which is this bit here. Below, Montluison is interesting because you've got Premier Cru Montluison, Village Montluison, and then part of Montluison is now the Grand Cru uh, Claude Laroche. Uh, what else they added in that? Yeah, they added Froichot, which is this little bit there. Uh, they added Frimière, which is here, and Chabillot there. Actually, that should be the other way around, I beg your pardon. Um, and uh, we've already added Montluison. And then a little bit later on, uh, in 1971, they added Genevrière and just a little whisper of Le Chaffaut next door. So one after the other, uh, these bits uh, got added to make the current nearly 17 hectares of Claude La Roche. So the two people who we've, clear all those, um, I'll just leave in the original bits for you. Uh, the two people who we've got to represent us tonight, one is a bit of a shock and one of them is deliberate. Uh, so the first one, uh, which I knew about was Coquart Loison Fleurot, the excellent triple barreled um, domain, which is based in Fleche Echezeau, in fact, but uh, part of the family come from uh, Maurice Saint-Denis, hence the holding of Claude Saint-Denis and Claude Laroche. Part come from um, uh, uh, Flagey Echezeau, so they have some Von Romanian and some Echezeau vineyards. And the uh, Fleuro bit are actually uh, more in agriculture down on the plain. The man making the wine is neither a Coquard nor a Loison nor a Fleuro, but Mr. Thomas Collado. Um, his mother was a Coquard. Uh, and she, I think, is the, that's the Maurice and Denis family. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, I think one of the family is actually currently the mayor of Flaché-Echezeau. Anyway, since he arrived, 2006, he arrived, he was born in 84, 2011, he took over completely. Young Thomas Collado has really completely transformed the domain. And this will be interesting to see in this uh, 2010 vintage, which is probably a bit of a transitional period. So I'm just going to open that up now. And uh, they uh, have a sizable holding of uh, Claire Laroche. They're one, two, their fifth biggest in all. They have a hectare 0.17. And they are mostly in uh, Chabillot with a little bit in Mochon. So Chabillot is this bit here, and Mochon is the bit at the bottom. Quite how I described it uh, earlier on. I think I put two the wrong way around. Uh, so those are the the two parts that make this up. And some of the vines date back to the 1930s, uh, which is um, means that what uh, in 2010 they would have been um, 75 years old. So all good news. I'm going to unshare for the time being, and then I can see your chats. Trying to be less clumsy than I was last week when I, one of my arms went sent a wine flying. So, um, young Tom Colliday, his best friend in the wine business, uh, similar sort of age, is actually uh, a bit younger, is Sebastian Catiar. And a lot of the things that Tom does these days uh, are very similar to what the um, Ketia is doing, which is to say that the um, 
breaks the destem, uh, given a bit of a cold soak. Fair amount of new oak, but that's got less than in the past. Uh, at this period, it would probably be quite a lot more uh, new oak than is the case today. Let's try and follow you a little bit on chat to see who's got news. So. Mark in rainy Dorset, please uh, send some of that rain over here. It really hasn't rained since the beginning of July and it's so, so dry. It does feel a little bit thundery. I gather it's everybody who's calling from the UK at any rate, it's pretty, pretty warm, steamy, thundery. I had my window open but I had to shut it because the people next door have got young kids who are out around there swimming pool and the squeals were deafening me. Right, so this wine is quite dark in colour. We're now 10 years old, so it's just beginning to mature uh, a little bit. It's um, quite high toned, I would say. Um, there's a certain amount of acidity uh, present in both the uh, aromatics and even more uh, evident on the palate. I suspect that the wine today would be have less acidity. It's not a noticeably acid year 2010, but as I say, this was a little bit of a transitional uh, period. But it's got intensity, it's got weight of fruit, it's still quite a red fruit. Um, and uh, it's not at all um, uncharacteristic of what we want Claude La Roche to be, because we're not expecting a dramatically sensual wine from Claude La Roche. We'll see a lot more of that when we get to Claude Saint-Denis. It's a little bit glib, but you can partner Claude La Roche with Chambertin, and you can partner Claude Saint-Denis with Musigny. So um, actually for a long time, I was really trying to get some vigneron to give me an accurate view as how they perceived Maurice Saint-Denis and also I'd asked them what they thought of the difference uh, between the two and I got a really really good quote from um, Jeremy Sace of Domaine Dujac. Um, we're not having his wines tonight because we quite often use his wines in these comparisons and I thought I would change things around a bit and look out for one or two other names. Um, but what Jeremy said about Claude Laroche, um, wherever there's a comparative it's with Claude Saint-Denis, it says, Claude Laroche makes a brawnier, more muscular wine. Certainly see the muscularity in this. Um, on the nose, recurrent aromas include musk, nutmeg, iron, graphite, and darker fruit in Clos Saint-Denis. On the palate, the tannins are always firmer and grainier. They're linen to Clos Saint-Denis silk. Or I sometimes think um, it's a raw silk texture rather than a refined silk. And Claude Laroche possesses a firm mineral core that generates much of its intensity as well as its initial austerity and its use. And I, I, I very much agree with that. I find it's it, it difficult to go uh, uh, enormously beyond it. Um, a friend of mine also says they tend to find blue fruit in Claude La Roche. I don't find it in this wine, but uh, uh, we'll see if we do in the, in the other example. Sinews is a word which I find sinews structured density.
where does Vinyard get its name from? Well, the obvious explanation is it's pretty close to the, the rock and uh, uh, hence <coughs> Clos de la Roche, the Clos of the Rock. But typically, Laurent Ponceau has a different idea. He says up in the forest behind, there is a big stone slab, which he thinks in druidical times they would have used to sacrifice virgins. And Laurent always likes to find a different explanation for almost anything in mind compared to whatever the received uh, explanation is. So uh, uh, that was his idea. But uh, I have learned not to take his ideas as gospel, but they add an extra, extra spice, extra piquancy. Um, Alistair asks if we drink this now or hide it away for several years. Um, I think if I were to drink it now, I'd certainly want to have it with food rather than on its own. So the question to me is, where is that acidity going to go? Because at the moment, it's just a fraction discordant. There's a little bit too much uh, acidity uh, in this wine. But um, we will we will we'll see how that develops. Typically, 2010 Grand Cru Red Burgundy, I'm not drinking yet, even though it's a vintage, it's a vineyard, sorry, correct first time, it's a vintage, which is reasonably accessible without having to wait for uh, too long a time. Um, okay. Jim will ask if we can talk about the premier cruise of time and hours. Uh, uh, certainly when we look, look back, back at the map, uh, I will maybe um, introduce some of the premier cruise while we're talking about Claire Laroche and Claire Saint-Denis. The snag with the premier cruise at this stage in Murray Saint-Denis until I learn more about the underlying geology is that there aren't many of them. They're all very small. And an awful lot of producers just lump them all together and make a Murray Saint-Denis Premier Cru. So it's harder to get your handle on any one particular Premier Cru. Good, okay. So I shall go back to uh, uh, the map just for a second, share that. And we're going to have a look at uh, what was supposed to be Domaine Hubert-Lignier's example. And it, it sort of is, but it's under the name of his grandchildren. And so we'll have to talk you through that story. Not, alas, a happy story at all. But uh, he has got um, uh, one hectare, 1.01 hectare in two parcels, but most of it is uh, in the mono... Uh, sorry, I've just got to get my annotation tools back. Most of it's in the Montvison sector. And some of the vines are really old. They go back to 1955. And now his son, Laurent, who's in charge, uh, is actually making one of those mini cuvées of uh, a few rows of the oldest vines and calling it 1955, but spelt in Roman numerals. So Hubert Lignier, there were cousins, Hubert and Georges Lignier, uh, of which most of my working lifetime, Hubert has been clearly superior to George. Maybe right at the start, back in the late 70s, the Georges Lignier wines were pretty smart. They definitely declined. And uh, the current incumbent, um, nephew of the last of more than one Georges Lignier, the current incumbent, uh, Benoit Steli, is, is improving things again, but I still think they are behind where Hubert Lignier is. Now, after Hubert reached uh, retirement age, it was his very gifted son, Romain Lignier, who took over. And Romain married an American girl called Kellen. And then tragically, Romain got a brain tumor and not quite immediately, but it didn't take all that long, uh, he passed away. So what to do? Uh, Kellen is at this point therefore officially in charge, but as so often in Burgundy, uh, what appears to be a domain is in fact 
agreements to share crop or to farm vineyards for family members. So Kellen, as the widow of Roma, has the agreement to uh, do that for all the Hubert Lignier vineyards and some will belong to other people as well. And she really wanted to continue things going in the names of their two children, uh, who are those on the label, Lucy and Auguste. Now, for whatever reason, and I'm not going to go into it, not even going to offer an opinion, but relations broke down completely between Kellen and her parents-in-law, and it was a very sticky time. Eventually, Kellen has left the region, uh, and the vineyards have gone back to Hubert Lignier. Uh, he's still around, but he's late 70s, I would say, could be 80. Um, and it's his other son, uh, Laurent Lignier, who's in charge of making wines. But back in this 2009 period, it would have been uh, Kellen who was, uh, I think, responsible for making the wines in her uh, children's name. So this is where it comes from. I'm intrigued by this. It is darker in color than most of the other wines. I think it was probably the darkest of the six when I lined my samples up. It's also one of two, which is marked at 14%. If you've got the samples, and I only noticed this during our last Zoom, in small numbers down on the bottom right, they actually tell you, or mine do at any rate, uh, I'm sure everybody's dead, but it will do, uh, they tell you what the alcohol level of a given wine is. I'm just breaking in a new glass, having broken the glass last week. Amazingly, though, I knocked it off my desk onto the floor. All that happened was the stem broke and the bowl didn't, but uh, I haven't glued it all back together again. So, Claude Laroche, number two, for us to play with. Good news uh, here is that even despite the heat and the humidity, uh, where I live is a, is a converted barn, but it's a wonderful old stone building, stone flagstones downstairs and uh, thick walls. So it, it, it uh, actually, the sun gets in nicely in the winter, but it keeps uh, the heat down in the summer. So I've just about been able to drink. So comparing the color and the color of the first wine wasn't shy, but this one is, is darker and deeper. Of course, it's 2009 as well. So uh, one in the series of hot vintages. And we're gonna have another one. The first Pinot Noir in Burgundy designed to make a still wine as opposed to sparkling wine was picked yesterday. I gather from Bill Nansen. Um, either yesterday or this morning. So that's an absolute record, uh, which is pretty alarming that you can start the main part of your harvest as early as the 12th and 13th of August. So the bouquet is a little less um, uh, evident than on the first wine, but it's also less volatile. I could pick this, the acidity that was going to come on the bouquet of the first wine. Here you've got something which is a little bit herbal, um, which is interesting. No, John, it's not 100 days from flowering. Well, this is a massive brawny wine. It's true that even when Hubert Lignier, when he was making them and continued by both his sons, these were firm, powerful, quite tannic wines. Not to my taste over extracted, because I felt that uh, the concentration of the fruit 
absolutely held up to the level of extraction. But they are wines which in their youth have a certain amount of tannins. And I think that this is quite some way away from being ready to drink. Um, I could go either way with the 2010, but this, if I had it in my cellar, I will put away for a substantial amount of time. Hmm. But again, we are in that rough, raw silk linen, as uh, uh, Jeremy described it. Uh, we've got my sinews in this wine, uh, possibly a little bit of the blue fruit that comes from my friend Roy Richards, that uh, particular descriptor. Um, and it leans a little bit towards Chevrolet Chambertin and Chambertin uh, in the, the firmer tannic structure that you're going to find in Clos Saint-Denis wines. Sorry, I, I should have said Clos de la Roche wines, apologies, misspoke. But I'm still paying attention to myself and realise that I misspoke, which is something. So back onto the map, you can see above Clos de la Roche is Montluison and then uh, a little bit of village Montluison. So a lot of this premier crew part is the Clos de Montluison belonging to Ponceau, which where they have the white vines. Um, Domaine Dujac also makes some white uh, Montluison. A couple of other people make reds up there. Below you've got premier crews, Chazot, Cham, Clos des Hommes, Charrières, um, and onto Faconnières. Uh, I haven't especially picked a character rather than sort of Maurice Saint-Denis plus from these ones on the right, Cherrier through to the end. Faconnier is a favourite of mine, um, Bleuette, Chenevery, uh, and then Les Mignons. Now you're getting into the middle section. So Faconnier through to Riot would probably be for me the sweet spot for the premier cruise of Maurice Saint-Denis. Um, and we'll come to the others when we move further over towards the uh, vineyards in this part of the world. So I'm going to park uh, those two. I'll just uh, clear my glasses and we're going to look at the two close and knees. Right, uh, so our first close and knee is going to come from Louis Jadot, who's Domaine Gaget. They also, I think, make a, a negotiant version as well, but this is their Domaine version. Uh, oh, Domaine Gaget. <coughs> Incidentally, both those first two wines and this third wine will all have been completely de-stemmed. We're only going to have one wine tonight, which is in the whole bunch camp. Um, so, we have the Clos Saint-Denis from Domaine Gaget, straight Louis Jadot. I haven't managed to find out exactly where within Clos Saint-Denis uh, the vines are, but um, I can tell you all the, the different bits. And it's the usual thing, it was originally just the central Clos Saint-Denis. Here, let me just hit my annotation buttons. So, uh, originally Clos Saint-Denis is basically here, to which then gets added Calloware, which is almost entirely uh, owned by um, um, Domaine Dujac. Then you have uh, along here a bit called Maison Brûlée, not the most uh, uh, attractive of names. Um, and then you have 
um, the chauffeur, which is here. So uh, they, those, that sector there makes up uh, close underneath. Um, and in fact, though these bits, Chafaud, Kawa, and Maison Brule were added, in all through this central part here, the bit that's originally close underneath and the bit above, which was Chafaud, they're the same rows of vines that go up without a break. The same people own them uh, all, all the way up. So I don't think there was anything particularly sinister or badly judged in adding those areas. So, um, Jadot, uh, 2009, so we're still under the um, guardianship, if that's the right word, because he probably wouldn't be that keen on winemaker, of Jacques Ladier, the amazing chap who made all the wines from 1970 through to 2000, somewhere 2011, 12, 13, he, he handed over. Um, and I remember at his uh, sort of leaving event when they showed both whites and reds over a 50 year period that he had been involved in making and indeed earlier than Robus Musini rather than one of these vineyards. Um, but it seemed in both colors that the really sweet spot was about 20 years old. So that would have been around about just after 1990. So either that was a period when he was doing particularly well or you really need to last that, uh, to keep the wines that long to get the best out of shadow. So they're quite punchy. Um, uh, so they destem everything. They are happy to let the temperatures rise quite high, and they're happy to have a post-fermentation maceration. Uh, there's quite a lot of punching down rather than pumping over. So it's in a what now seems an old-fashioned extractive style, which would explain why they don't always leap out of the blocks in a way that many people want. Nowadays, short attention spans, people do so much want their wines to be drinking beautifully very early on. And the Chevet style has not been aimed at doing that. So we got one of the darker colors here. And we got a firm uh, bouquet, still detect a little bit of oak. oak. Um, uh, remembering also that this is a warm vintage. It's an early September vintage, whereas 2010 was late September and into October. I don't think any 2009s are singing straight out of the blocks. I do really believe that this is a great, great vintage for the long term. Uh, I didn't address that too much on the last wine, but I will here because I think this wine shows it. So along comes 2009, one in what is now a, an ongoing series of very hot vintages, when people are picking quite early in the season. So that means that the days are hotter and therefore a lot of people were just doing the picking in the mornings. And I remember some of the growers being a little bit uncomfortable, let's say, about the warmth of the ambient temperature at harvest time. Of course, nowadays everybody knows how to cool their grapes down, which wouldn't have happened in, in an earlier period before the year 2000. Um, and so at this point, um, you've got these really powerful wines, but they were exceptionally juicy and they had what uh, David Pepper Peppercorn about 1982 Bordeaux described as puppy fat about them. And a lot of people, because of this sensuality and juiciness, suggested these might be wines to drink early. But I saw them differently, except from a few people who were very late pickers and who I felt picked too late. But broadly speaking, 
what I feel about 2009 is you start with this immediate richness of fruit. You then move to something which is almost an immense block of granite in the middle of it, granitic tannins. And then they in turn are probably covering even more fruit. So now at 10 years on, apologies, shutting the door a bit. Um, at 10 years on, um, I think that you are seeing the granite tannins and the fruit, though it's clearly present. This wine doesn't taste fruitless, nor did the last one, but it's not the primary factor about the wine. So that fruit is, we'll say in abeyance, or at least um, under wraps at the moment, but it's clearly there. There's no feeling of lack of fruit here. And so in another 10 years, as the tannins slowly break up uh, and release the fruit, I think you're gonna have really, really special wines from 2009, which will be probably 50 year wines in a way that 2010s won't be. 2010s are beginning to get good to drink. They'll be at their best over the next five to 10 years. And then they'll fool us all by lasting longer than we say, but nonetheless, it won't be a vintage that will go on getting better and better. 2009, I believe, will once it starts to get properly good. A lot of potential in this wine, really powerful. Intensity of fruit, good acidity as well as the tannins. Uh, in a deep red register, not really black fruit here. Um, and um, yeah, no, I think that's something that uh, um, mm, uh, has got a lot that's, that's savoury, if you like. And again, this um, comes into a Maurice Andini character. I often use the word savoury when describing words of Moray and parts of Jovi Chambertin, almost never for Chambon Nizny. Good, so that's the shadow holding, and now we're going to have something which, in theory, in theory, is very special. Hard to find, I'm very pleased we did. Domaine Ponce, it's called Domaine. One area in which our super sleuth and generally a very honest person, Laurent Ponceau, one thing he did which I didn't completely agree with, is he labelled all the wines to men. Now, the rules say that if you farm or share crop the vineyard, then uh, as opposed to owning it outright, you can call it to men. If it's a negociant cuvee, even if you run the vineyard, but you brought, bought the grapes afterwards, you're not supposed to put the on it. His argument would be that he had de deposed the mark. Sorry, that's more of a French expression. But they had the brand of Domaine Ponceau, and that's what they used. But um, under Laurent and subsequently, they have put Domaine Ponceau in all the wines they produce. This particular wine, the Clos Saint-Denis Vievine, Très Vievine even, um, because they were planted in 1905. So even for 2009, that makes them well over 100 years old. Um, these belong to the Domaine de Chezeau and are farmed or sharecropped by a Domaine Ponceau until and including 2016. Uh, and from 2017, I might be wrong about 16, it could have changed the year before, but in either 16 or 17, Laurent Ponceau has taken this vineyard and the other sharecrop vineyards with him to his new business. Um, however, um, this, of course, was made by Laurent as at the Domaine. Now, I think the shadowness of the previous wine actually gave it some characteristics which you could argue were a little bit more to La Roche than Clos Saint-Denis. 
this wine has got a hedonistic style, um, very different from Ponceau's own domain, Claude La Roche, which of course is so well known, and they are the biggest holders. And here they've got about a third of a hectare, um, which they share crop, um, of classic uh, Claude La Roche. Sorry, close underneath, I beg your pardon. Most of it is in the main part of Close underneath, and a little bit is in Chateau. That's because the rows are going up and down, so it's all the same rows. Those of you who've got it, you put your nose in that, and it's really just an explosion of fruit. And floral too, you've got some violets, things like that in there. So the total close underneath is a much smaller vineyard, it's only a third of um, Clos La Roche. And it's named for the martyr, uh, Saint-Denis, so you have the uh, Stade Saint-Denis, um, where the rugby uh, uh, and the football, I think, um, uh, for in Paris, um, either do now hang out or used to. And uh, that is uh, uh, um, from Saint-Denis, the original martyr, Denis or Denis. Uh, they cut his heads off um, because he was being too successful. Uh, I say heads, he, they cut his head off uh, because he's been too successful at converting people to Christianity. And then he walked all the way from Montmartre uh, to Saint-Denis uh, with his head tucked under his arm. And uh, hence he got uh, officially made a saint. And uh, his, his cult continues, if you like. Uh, so that then became the Close Saint-Denis in Moray. And then thence Moray Saint-Denis really adoring the bouquet of this wine. Explosive, sensual, de-stemmed again. Um, no new oak here. There would have been more new oak in each of the first three wines. Um, but a really long, fine, powerful finish. Not under court, not under Diam, but under his other seal closures. Um, ones that look like suppositories, but uh, he is very much convinced by, as are several other people who've used them. and do occasionally hear negatives about them, and certainly aesthetically, they're not very pleasing. But um, if you've had a bad experience, let us know. If you've had good experiences, let us know on the chat. We'd be interested to get your comments. Sure, Paul Day will have something to add on this particular subject. I'm loving that wine, and uh, that sort of brings us through the two Close Underneath wines, um, which for me on today's showing, I think they have worked better than the two Clela Roche wines. Having said which, across the years and across the producers, across the vintages, I am on the whole. Personally, and it is entirely personal, a little bit more of a Claude La Roche person. Maybe it's the austerity that uh, is not that obvious in my character, but nonetheless, uh, uh, often is in my, in my taste. Just looking to see if I can find Jeremy's, uh, Jeremy says again, his particular characterization of Claude Saint-Denis. He says it leans more towards the floral. Well, we saw that in the nose of this wine, so that was a violet. Redder fruit than Claude La Roche in most vintages. Strikes me as more aromatic than its neighbour too. I think we found that in these two wines, these four wines, especially with age. Fruit plays a 
bigger role in the profile of close underneath than include La Roche. And the most consistent difference is the tenon. The tenons of close underneath are very silky, definitely the case in this one, um, which makes it more approachable earlier than Claude Laroche. Yeah. My own experience, I've, I would describe close underneath as being plumper wines, headier, more immediately charming, Claude Laroche, and the fruit shows a little bit more at the front of the palette. Doesn't mean to say it doesn't continue all the way through. And Radio 4 listeners can now welcome Ronan, who is, I see has joined in. Ronan's been hard at work tasting with the canter today, which is why uh, Sophie has been uh, looking after us thus far. But Ronan, any comments from you will be welcome later on. Grand, okay. So we are now going to move away from um, our two shared uh, Grand Cru's and I am going to go back to our map and we will continue going left to right and we have Claude Lombre. So it appears to be a monopoly, but uh, two things to say. One is it comes in three separate uh, Yerdi, um, which Claude uh, doesn't. And the other is that there is a small interloper. So uh, our three Yerdi, let me just Ah, the main part is called Les Larets, uh, is the big heart here. A little bit at the bottom called May, M-E-I-X, May Rentier. And over here, Les Bouchot. And also um, an interloper. Uh, we might be wrong on this map. It could be the tiny bit here. Uh, I'm going to change my stamp. Uh, there's a, what used to be a vegetable garden. I put a gold star there. Which merits a start. Uh, used to be the vegetable garden belonging to the Topano Mam family, and it got replanted as a tiny bit of vineyard. They haven't really even got enough to make a whole barrel, and it's in the lower part, which is probably the less interesting bit. They serve it last after their other Grand Cru's, and to me, it doesn't come into the same quality as the rest of their Grand Cru wines. In fact, all their wines, it's a really good domain, but I don't think their Clé de Lombre uh, bears comparison with the main label. Um, now, so this is a, a monopoly um, which has um, is first mentioned back in the 14th century as a Claude and Claude Lombre, both absolutely ancient. Uh, and then it got sold off as happens in the French Revolution. And by 1828, there were 75 different owners. Uh, but a local negotiant called Louis Jolie managed to piecemealy bought bit after bit after bit and eventually he got the whole lot together took him 20-30 years and in 1866 he sold it to the Rodier family and uh, we often talk about how the, um, Dr Laval rated the vineyards and he rated the Claude Lombre premier cruvée for the central bit a bit less for the two side bits um, but Camille Rodier writing in 1920 he made it tête de cuvée so the top category but then his family owned the vineyard, so that might explain it. Uh, they sold up in 1938 to a formidable lady called René Cosson, and whether it was Rodier's or Cosson, but anyway, they didn't apply for Grand Cru. They didn't want Grand Cru. They said they'd have to pay more taxes, familiar story. And it was only after um, it was sold again in 1979 that the new owners, the Sayer brothers, applied for Grand Cru now, everybody knew quite clearly it should be Grand Cru, so that happened almost immediately. It happened in just two years, 
whereas, as you know, if you've been following the saga of various villages trying to get some premier crews, it's taking more than 10 years in each case. So now I'm going to uh, stop the sharing and I'm going to ask uh, Sophie to share. Uh, I've got a couple of pictures. This comes uh, from Adama, which is the company of our excellent friend Francois Venier. And I was given these by uh, Boris Champy when he was in charge briefly at uh, Claudia Lombre. Uh, so uh, the first thing we've got is the geological map of Lombre. So it's a biggish vineyard. It goes up above. You can see there over on the... Can you see my mouse, by the way? Can you see my mouse rotating or can you only see Sophie's mouse? Perhaps I should take control of it. Yeah, I couldn't see yours, Jasper. You can't see my map. Okay. In which case, I will take control. I'm hoping now, can you see my mouse, people? Yes or no, or do you still see Sophie's mouse? I can see two mice. No? All right, well, in that case, I will uh, go back to the uh, annotation. So over here is Clodetar, uh, and you can see that, in fact, it only comes up to this level here, whereas Claude Lombre comes much higher. Uh, and so you have got further up the slope and you're gonna get a different band of rock uh, that high up. It also undulates from side to side. So broadly speaking, we've got four or five different geologies. We got hard limestone up here uh, at the top. Um, all that bit. Uh, we've again, um, We've then got the, that's the limestone of Combrocha. We then have a water retaining limestone here. Uh, an interesting bit right in the center, the spotty bit um, is different because that is what they call Greslite and appears much, much later on. So otherwise in the Jurassic period, we're talking about 150 million years ago. This bit, this rock formation is 25 million years old. And basically it's caused by, uh, in a semi-glacial period, there weren't actually glaciers here, but the land freezes in the winter and it uh, melts in the summer and freezes in the winter and melts in the summer and that breaks it all up. So this is what's called Greslite and uh, it's a really interesting soil. Chevrochampathon um, Combat would be another bit that's on Greslite. And then down at the bottom, you've got another form of limestone, which is called uh, crinoidal limestone, Calcaire en Troc, down in these bits here. But guess what? We love to talk about the geology, and that should make a difference. Um, but it isn't just the geology. If I could have the next slide, please. Here we've got the pedology, new word for me earlier this year. And this is what the soil looks like. If you can remember that previous slide, they're not that different. Um, but we've really got three bits that uh, we can uh, worry about. You've got uh, up at the top in that brown with, with polka dotted brown, uh, you have uh, uh, a not very thick, very limestone chip type soil. So lots of stones from the limestone, uh, limestone in that soil. Um, partly it's come down from above, partly it's the natural soil. Then you get your Christmas wrap, wrapping paper um, uh, uh, in, in the middle. Uh, and again, it's, uh, it's it is quite limestone, um, but it's a much thicker soil and it sort of much more relates to its Creslite undersoil. And finally at the bottom, and the bit called Mayrontier, uh, which is this greyish bit down here, 
you have got uh, hardly any limestone apparent in the topsoil. It's a much heavier clay, and it's probably a little bit, uh, a little bit um, less interesting soil, though as it happens, the oldest vines, which date back to the 19th century, are planted down in this, in this part. Um, so those are the two, uh, uh, we, we can lose those two now, thank you, Sophie. Um, so uh, we'll save that one up for later, we'll come back to that one. Um, so that gives you an idea of what Claude Lombre is all about. Um, so after Madame Cosson uh, uh, dies or sells up, the Sire brothers take over. Uh, they appoint a young man called Thierry Bruin to be their winemaker. And he's retained when the Sire is set up in 1986 to a German industrialist called Gunther Freund, uh, who actually was a really, really positive, beneficial owner um, because he, his instructions with Thierry Bruin was just to make the best wine that you can. Uh, I'm not worried about charging huge prices. And as a result, there always very different pricing between Claude uh, de Lombre and Claude de But just make me a nice wine. That's all I want you to do. And Thierry, uh, so he, he was there for the Sire brothers. He was there for Gunther uh, Freund. Uh, he was there afterwards when uh, Freund um, uh, sold on to the um, um, LVMH group. And uh, he only eventually retired. By then, he, I mean, he's beyond retirement age. So he was replaced in late 2017. They worked together for a while uh, by Boris Schompe, who I first met when uh, Boris was um, working at Dominus in Napa Valley. So Boris uh, made the 2018s, uh, but something went wrong. He didn't obviously get on with the owners or their advisors, and uh, uh, he left uh, quite quickly. And in March 2019, uh, Jacques de Vosges, who had himself just left Claude d'Etat after a short spell there, a real game of musical chairs in Maurice Anthony, Jacques de Vosges uh, took over. So um, uh, he is now the man in charge. But it was Boris Chompy who shared with me those maps. And he also kindly invited me to an incredible vertical tasting of the Claude Lombre when we went back over 100 years back to, uh, we did it in J July the 3rd, 2018, I can remember, because that was one of the storm days that summer. Uh, rained heavily at lunchtime, but it was beautiful again in the evening. And we did the tasting back to 1918. So I'm going to pour that into a glass. I'll taste this wine and then I'll talk about my views on Claudio Lombre in general. So this is our first and only wine, which is made um, predominantly uh, it's not pretty much entirely with uh, whole bunches. But Thierry was unusual because typically, if you're going to play the whole um, bunch game, you typically say, I definitely want my grapes to be ripe because I want the stems to be ripe. And Thierry was always one of the very, very first uh, pickers, um, whereas his neighbor, who originally was all the stem, though later on he began to introduce some whole bunch. Uh, his neighbour was one of the last pickers, and Thierry was one of the first. So Thierry would always have finished well before Sylvain Pitiot next door had, had, had started. So that's a, a little unusual. But you get absolutely, uh, th this is 
more typical of, let's say, a domain Dujac or domain Delano type whole bunch than a Lelou Vizcoir or domain La Romani Conti type. And so you've got aromatics of white pepper. You've got a little bit of the crushed strawberry aromatics. Even now at 10 years on, um, 11 years on, 2009, you are a little bit more um, the style of winemaking more than necessarily classically the vineyard. I thought all the way through, I thought Thierry made beautiful wines at very kind prices. Uh, there was a moment, I'll try to remember exactly when it was, but for the longest time we were able to buy and back buy, so we buy everything we wanted at a new vintage and we could get quite a few um, uh, past vintages as well. Then almost overnight, it was around about this time, 2009, uh, might have been even a touch earlier than this, suddenly the new vintage was on allocation and everything older had sold out. Suddenly as Burgundy really, really became everybody's favourite. Mm. Mm. It's just a style I love that. Really elegant, stylish. It's less powerful than either of the two vineyards, any of the four wines we've had so far, but it's wonderfully elegant. Now, is that everything that you can do? Maybe, but maybe not. And the reason I would say maybe not is that when we did do the vertical tasting, and he, of course, was there, uh, 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 as well as Boris Champy, um, we tasted 20 odd vintages from young all the way back um, to the 1918 and years like 1937 and 1923 for me showed that Claude de can be one of the very, very grandest of all. Um, and, you know, I mean, five star wines unquestionably and you felt you had the weight and the power of the grandest of the Grand Cru's. Um, so my note on the 23 was light and bright in colour, less dense than 71 or 47, for example. But showing off, I apologise. But really intense, fresh fruit, joyous cherry notes. How can this be so pure? This really is brilliant, transcending even the gorgeous 1937. So despite the youth it's showing, this wine has clearly taken a long time to reach this moment of exquisite balance, an effortless tribute to the glories of Burgundy and what Claude de Lombre can achieve at its very best. So we'll see what happens. Um, uh, Boris never really got a chance to make his mark. Uh, the 2018s, um, the Claude de Lombre was pretty good. The Village and Premier crew uh, had a little touch of volatility about them. Um, and now we'll see what Jacques de Vosges can do thereafter. But immediately, even from his first vintage, when he's hardly yet had time to pan it, he started to uh, divide the vineyard up into the various different plots by age and by soil type and the underlying rock type and everything of course will all get blended together at the end but he will le learn a great deal more about the vineyard and it may be it may be that we will move up to um, even another uh, standard of quality but I don't want to take anything away from Thierry Bruin because as, as Mark has mentioned on the chat he is a gen a lovely man, and he made just a beautiful style of wine that I adored. I'm not going to pull this away, I shall finish this off. Okay, let's look at the neighbour, Claude Tar. And so if we could have that last slide. 
so this is quite interesting um, because it not only shows, it, 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 it comes from the same report on the Clé de Lombre, um, but it shows uh, all, um, several different vineyards. So you've got Bonmar uh, down here, and you've got Clé de Tar. Yeah, I mean, it would be a perfect rectangle if it weren't for the actual buildings there. And you can see where Lombre goes all the way up. Oops, sorry, I've gone too far there. Uh, well, just note I've gone too far, but um, so that so there's Lombre. So you can see that they are a different shape. And Creditar is uh, a, a lot more compact. It also has got various blocks of different ages and different soils. Broadly speaking, the top bit is the um, Marl, Marn or Austria Accuminata. So Marl with little bits of oyster shell. And then the bottom bit is the uh, crinoidal um, limestone calca en troc. Um, so it doesn't have all the top part that Lombre has. The other factor that's different is that uh, whereas most other vineyards, including Bonmar, including Lombre, the vines are going up and down slope, here at Lombre they go crossways like this. So only four owners ever of which three in the last hundred years. So um, originally the church up to the French Revolution, and of course they get uh, dis dispossessed. Uh, then it went to the Marimange family who owned pretty much everything at one point or other. Um, and uh, they were uh, uh, one of the families that really suffered in the huge financial crash of 32-33. They sold up and the Montmessin family who were doing well down in the Beaujolais, they bought it and they retained it through until very recently when um, it was bought by the Artemis group of vineyards, uh, that is to say, uh, Monsieur François Pinot, and it's therefore run by Frédéric Angerer, who also runs Chateau de la Tour. And by chance, there was a lunch for those of us born in 1957 and one or two who weren't, at Berry Brothers in October of um, 2017, um, when we were all uh, enjoying a lunch full of 57s. And we had also invited Frederick Angerer because he said he would bring the Latour in 1957. And he kept having to dash out in the middle of lunch. We thought, well, that's not very well behaved or he's, he's got a, a data problem or something. But it turned out that was the day that they're actually signing, not quite signing, but they were completing the deal to buy Clodetar. Um, so when um, he took over at uh, Clodetar, they had recently appointed Jacques de Vosges as the winemaker in succession to the retired Sylvain Pitiot. Evidently, and I don't know the full story and I don't know uh, who made the decision, but uh, Jacques de Vosges resigned uh, and a month later he took the job at Clodé Lombre. So how it all worked out, I'm not interested in, in pursuing the detail, but there's, there's probably a no novel in there somewhere. Uh, as a musical chairs in Maurice Saint-Denis. Uh, and in his place, uh, Angerer has appointed Alessandro Noli, who was running the Chateau Grier property they have down in the Northern Rhone. So Clodetar under Sylvain Pitié. So here you've got these two properties next door to each other, made by two very different personalities and in completely different styles. So uh, Sylvain Pitié was a late picker, initially completely destemmed, Later on, he began to add a proportion of whole bunches into the older vines. 
I haven't checked whether he'd begun to do that by 2009, but my instinct says that he hadn't really at that stage. Um, and we did a lovely retrospective uh, dinner at the Clos to taste every vintage that Sylvain Petitot had made, 96 through to his last one, uh, 2016. So we had 21 vintages, and some of them we then uh, had to dinner afterwards, not the 09 because it's still a little bit young. Um, so let, I'm really interested to see how this is because my take on it was because Sylvain Petitot liked to pick very late to make sure he had absolute physiological ripeness, I tended slightly to prefer the cooler vintages of his more than the hotter vintages. Um, so I liked his 11, his 07, um, his 13. Um, and I gave a good note to the uh, 09 from that tasting, but I said it was pretty powerful, um, pretty, pretty um, uh, punchy wine that was going to need a long, long time. And that's still quite powerful and punchy as well. Hmm. Yep. Little bit of mental. So I'm not sure if you're referring to this wine or the previous wine, because you can sometimes get a mental character in, in with the whole bunch. But I'm getting more mental in, in, in this wine. It's a much darker colour than the Claudio Lombre. Partly the later picking, partly the uh, thanks uh, was indeed this one, and I certainly do get mental here. So um, partly the later picking and partly um, whole bunch tends to give you lighter colours. Simon says it is so different on the nose to to any others. So my note from whenever it was three years ago on this exact wine, fullish, rich color, more deep red than black. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's deepening in color. The ripeness and to some extent the alcohol, and I think this will be our other one that was marked at 14 degrees, I'm looking for it. It's marked at 14, wouldn't be surprised if it's on the upper side of 14. So the ripeness and to some extent the alcohol define the nose, while the mouth uh, offers harmony, but it's certainly punchy. Deep cherry liqueur on the cusp of red and black. Dry tannins are lurking, but such a rich covering of fruit. Actually, the, the tannins are a little bit more covered now than they were uh, those three or four years ago. And it has got that cherry liqueur feel to it, uh, as well as the menthol, and a huge amount of ripeness. I think it's horses for courses, really. I think it depends on what you're looking for in Burgundy, which is going to be your wine between the Clos de Tar and the Clos de Lombre. One of the reasons why it's so hard to give scores to these wines, as I'm supposed to do as a journalist, because it really does depend on what style you like. And you can only really score the wine as to whether somebody has achieved what they were setting out to achieve. But then one reader stroke taster is going to much prefer one wine to the other. So uh, let's have a little look. Uh, we've got a few questions coming in. Um, and. Um, Uh, Jan Kamras is asking, is there any change in the soil competition? The Murray um, part of um, uh, Bon Mar, where it borders Clos de Tar, uh, not really. Actually, uh, if we go back to the, uh, uh, to, to the map, uh, it doesn't show on here, 
but there was a tiny strip of Tredetar inside Tredetar that was officially called Bon Mar. Uh, that's to say what they call the cadastral reference was Bon Mar, but it was always counted as Tredetar. And after a while, they killed it off and said, no, we'll just call it all Tredetar. Um, no, there's not really, not really um, any difference there. Um, uh, I'll come back uh, at the end, but quality price ratio uh, for um, uh, Clodoros, Clé, Clé-Saint-Denis. Um, uh, so Clodotar, no, there is only one producer of Clodotar, and so that's why they can say Monopole. Clodotar can't because there is that other producer, but there is only one producer of Clodotar. Um, <clears throat> if you see someone with a different person's name on it, uh, then, then that's uh, not correct. It's possible that in the Momassin period, it might also mention the name Momassin, and then post-Momassin, it won't mention it. Okay, so Sophie, have you got the quiz for us? Um, usual quiz. I don't know how many of you have got the wines. Uh, so please choose your two favorites. The multiple choice, two favorites. Um, and I will think about mine, but as you know, I'm not allowed to vote. So put your votes in place. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, Sophie, take it away and give us the answers. Right, I am not at all surprised, and that was certainly my votes. Domaine Ponceau, Domaine de Nombre, uh, the two big winners, 79%, 71%. Clodotar comes third with 29%, and that's a pretty impressive, powerful wine. Um, my third wine, that would have been um, probably fourth just because I actually thought the Gage uh, stroke Louis Shadow play Saint-Denis. Uh, so maybe I'll put those third equal with Claude Uh And then tonight, I didn't think either of the Claude Roches quite did justice uh, to that vineyard. And in general, I'm fractionally more of a Claude um, La Roche man than I am a Claude Saint-Denis man. Um, but I, I probably preferred the Lucie and Auguste lineage, the Coca was en fleuro. I don't think that wine was made then as well as he's making the wines today. Okay, uh, if you need to drift off, do. But actually, uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to run through a few of the producers of Claude Laroche and Claude Saint-Denis and uh, give you an indication of a few favorites of mine and also where you might find value. So we'll look at, at um, Claude Laroche, the big player is Ponceau, and of course they're expensive, and the next biggest is Dujac, and they're also expensive. Both are really, really good. I personally utterly adore the Dujac style. I should say Jeremy and um, his wife Diana are very good friends, uh, so you can put that into the equation as well, uh, but they're top stuff. Armand Rousseau is third biggest, and okay, his Claude Laroche looks good value compared to some of his top Chauvry Champetown wines, um, but because it doesn't quite match up to his top Chauvry Champetown wines, he's often a little bit forgotten, but that's still really good wine. Pierre Amiot is next in line. I need to go and visit again because they've just decided the two sons, Pierre's two sons, have just decided to go their separate ways. I felt there were decent wines before, but they were never on my must-have list. Cocarle was en fleuro, absolute must-have now, but probably beginning to be priced that way. Georges Lignier, improving again, but it's not, still not on, really on my buying list. 
Hubert Lignier, absolutely. Uh, I think there are so many Lignier fans out there who are quite discreet, perhaps, that you don't see it very widely distributed, their winners. Parizo sells mostly um, in bulk to a few very good uh, uh, negotiants. Loire, well, wonderful wine, but I'm afraid if you're looking for uh, a good buy that's inexpensive, we're not looking there. Castagnier, big, butch, powerful, dark-coloured wines, which actually are really impressive. I want to see the style that he's making now. I really want to see them when they're mature uh, before going all out in his favour, but they're not expensive and they're definitely interesting. Uh, next in order, Ospice de Bone, where, of course, I have a vested interest because I, uh, with Christie's, promote their wines. Um, I shall be starting looking at what's going on as from next week. Um, but uh, they, of course, make, make some beautiful wines, particularly in the last three, four, five years with Ludovine Griveaux in charge. Arlo, A-R-L-A-U-D, uh, very good. Um, um, uh, I think they have both, but they have more in Claude La Roche. Uh, and they're not stupidly expensive either. So there's a good uh, balance uh, to be had there. Uh, David Dubon, stroke of François Freya, uh, really elegant, lots of whole bunch, stylish wines. Not given away, but not too expensive. Um, ah, yes. Next down is uh, the family used to have more. Chantal Remy. Um, uh, not at all expensive. And you can get back vintages there. Uh, occasionally the corks might let you down. But uh, it's, a, it's a fun uh, source for old vintages uh, of Claude La Roche. Uh, after that, you have Michel Magnat. Uh, quite punchy stuff, but he's lightened his style a little bit and moved away from New Oak, more towards Amphorie. Uh, Gérard Raffet, I'd like to know the wines better. Again, he's one of those discreet producers where has a following of people who love his wines and they, they disappear from the marketplace quickly. Domaine de la Pousteau, on form at the moment, um, never quite had the public image since the departure of Gérard Patel. The wines are being made extremely well. And Virgil Ligné Michelot, great guy, uh, and, and super wines. So those are the main producers of Claude La Roche, and a little bit of an indication also on some of them at any rate with pricing. Claude Saint-Denis, Georges Ligné has the biggest part, and he does sell a certain amount to negotiants as well as make it himself. And almost as big as Dujac, so yes, but there's a certain price. I haven't been to Britannia for a while. Um, but they should be pretty good and it shouldn't be too expensive. Ponceau uh, will be expensive, but is sensational. Aha, a number of the discreet, another of the discreet under the radar people is uh, the main Henri Jouin, or perhaps now Philippe Jouin. Um, he's got a third of a hectare, and again, all disappears straight into people's cellars early on. Castanier again, Stéphane Magna, I like a lot, uh, and I think will not be too expensive. He's really come on in recent years, uh, not, not threatening yet to be a superstar, but properly good wines at a fair price. And also uh, Florence Herstein, uh, I really, really like her style of elegant wines, very reflective person, easy good wines. Um, and after that, you get some from Amio Sauvel, Amio, tiny bit from Coca Le Vazon Fleuro, Philippe Chalapin, Arlo, a little bit from Jadot, Michel Magnard. And, minuscule amount from uh, Ligné Michelot. 
Grand, I think I've answered your questions. I think I have, uh, just checking that. Um, and somebody who's tasting it or has recently been drinking the Clotetard 2005 is better balanced and showing the terroir better than 2009. Uh, I'd need to nip back and uh, have a look at what I thought of the 2005 on that evening of the retrospective. And yes, I gave it three points more. In fact, I gave it 96 points. Uh, served in magnum, rich, deep, and solid, certainly the thickest textured wine to date, very dark fruit, deep plum, uh, not vin fin, perhaps, but a lovely drink. Uh, the heat in the tannins do show, but there's time ahead for these to resolve. Indeed, the wine was much, much better and fresher when drunk later at table with a slightly cooler temperature. So I think the sample, when we first tasted it, was a little bit hot. Great. So, um, big thanks to Sophie as being our, our host behind the, the scenes tonight. Thank you all for joining. Thank, Thank you, Jesper. The next one is going to be the 20th of August, Jesper, Understanding Corton. Yes, because several people have asked about that. One of those neglected Grand Cru's, partly because a lot of it shouldn't be Grand Cru, but we can really get to grips and, and work our way around the hillside and work out where the sweet spots are, where the value is. Um, and what should we do after that? What do you have next? I think that on well, 27th, we have Ali Gosse first. Yes. I hope that's the beginning of the... Uh, of the bank holiday weekend, I would think, um, just before. Um, but I'm so excited to be doing that one. And do please join in uh, and get the samples. Obviously not expensive, the Aligotes, but there is so much to say about this grape. And after that, we've got a couple of horizontals, 2010 in red and 2014 in white. Good. So, um, Ronan, hope you're keeping well. Sophie, uh, you too. Yes, thanks, Jasper. <laughs> and uh, see you all next time.